prominent Iranian opposition figure makes a rare public visit to Israel, while Iran and Saudi Arabia take further steps to normalize relations. We'll get reaction and ask why Riyadh is moving quickly to reconcile with its regional rival Iran. What we're seeing now is Saudi Arabia reverting to what was its long traditional stance, which is, well, if our first policy doesn't work, let's try something else. Plus, Iran starts using street cameras to try to identify women flouting Islamic laws on hair coverings and warn them to comply. A Google executive gives us her outlook on this new surveillance system. My expectation is that if people do not respond to warnings, but you know, if that isn't an effective deterrent, then the penalties will become more severe. And later in the program, a discussion about the ways Iranians could try to achieve a peaceful revolution against the Islamic Republic. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning, I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Iran's U.S.-based Crown Prince Reza Pahlavi is in Israel in the first public visit to the Jewish state by such a high-profile Iranian opposition figure. Since Pahlavi arrived on Monday, he has attended ceremonies marking Israel's Holocaust Remembrance Day, met with Israeli leaders, and greeted members of Israel's Persian Jewish community. As Pahlavi attended Monday's ceremony at the Yad Vashem Holocaust Research Center, he told Israeli media what he thinks of repeated calls by Iran's Islamist rulers for the destruction of Israel. What we hear from the Iranian regime is not what the Iranian people actually believe. This regime does not represent the Iranian people. No. My computers are proud of their history, the history that dates back 2,500 years when Cyrus the Great helped free Jewish slaves and helped rebuild their temples. It's a biblical relationship that our two countries have had over centuries. And today, when we have a regime that denies that the Holocaust ever occurred, it was my duty to be here representing my fellow compatriots to honor the victims of the Holocaust and pay my respects. Israel and Iran had friendly ties before the 1979 revolution that ousted Reza Pahlavi's father from power and replaced him with Islamist clerics hostile to the Jewish state. In Israel, the ousted Shah's son expressed hope for a return to that friendship. But how likely is such a scenario? I put that question to analyst Patrick Clausen of the Washington Institute for Near East Policy in a Tuesday phone call. Well, Pahlavi is capturing the mood of much of the current uh, opposition to the Islamic Republic, which is that it wants to have a, a broad tent. It wants to include lots of people. And so this uh, attitude which says that uh, uh, we should have decent relations with all countries in the world, uh, that fits, I think, the popular Iranian mood. Uh, is this going to be a, a tight strategic relationship? I doubt it, but it's certainly going to be better than just the current situation and indeed probably reasonably correct, reasonably neighborly relations. Mm -hmm. If I may mention that uh, while Reza Pahlavi is visiting Israel, he's going to visit the world headquarters of the Baha'i movement. And the uh, Baha'i movement has been anathema to the Islamic Republic. And, and uh, once again, Pahlavi is showing him his, his spirit of outreach and let's all live together in peace and harmony. So there are uh, quite bitter divisions among some Iranian opposition groups 
with you know, members of those groups uh, being highly critical of Pahlavi, for example, saying that he is discrediting himself by engaging with an Israeli government that they see as extremist, anti-democracy, oppressing Palestinians, you know, all of which Israel disputes. Uh, so what impact do you think uh, Pahlavi's Israel visit could have on those divisions and on the efforts by some of these groups to try to actually unite behind the recent protests in Iran? Well, the Iranian opposition has a long history of being divided uh, and more interested in fighting each other than fighting the Islamic Republic. And uh, the spirit of recent years, and especially the spirit of recent months, has been, let us all work together. And I think that um, working with Pahlavi fits in with that well. And what Pahlavi is saying is, look, uh, we have to extend that uh, working with the historic enemies of the Islamic Republic. Uh, and so for much of the public inside uh, Iran, uh, the attitude is anybody who hates the Islamic Republic has to be pretty good. Uh, and so therefore, there's a certain degree of sympathy for Israel. And I think Pahlavi is capturing that quite nicely. Well, moving on to another topic here, Iran and Saudi Arabia. They've been moving quickly to implement their recent normalization deal, including by Iran inviting the Saudi king for a visit and by Saudi Arabia allowing the Iranian embassy in Riyadh to reopen its gates last week for the first time in seven years. Why do you think they're moving so quickly? Well, the two countries do have some important common interests, such as the many Iranians each year who go on Hajj uh, to Mecca, which is very important uh, to the clerical establishment inside Iran, uh, and the Saudi leadership under Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, has been determined to show that it can diversify uh, its relationships with other countries, that it's not completely dependent upon uh, the United States. And that kind of hedging behavior uh, is what MBS is doing with Iran. What do you think is motivating Saudi Arabia to also reestablish a dialogue with Syria's Assad regime, uh, with Assad being a key ally of Iran? One thing to note is that the Saudi foreign minister, Prince Faisal bin Farhan, is actually visiting Damascus today in the first such visit by a top Saudi diplomat since 2011. So uh, what do you see behind this move? Well, Saudi Arabia for a long time has had the approach that we'll give something a try, and if it doesn't work, well, all right, we'll change our directive. And it's been rather surprising under um, um, Mohammed bin Salman's leadership in Saudi Arabia how much the Saudis have stuck to positions like the war in Yemen or like their opposition to Assad. Uh, and what we're seeing now, both with Syria and with Yemen, is Saudi Arabia reverting to what was its long traditional stance, which is, well, if our first policy doesn't work, let's try something else. And so the policy of trying to overthrow Assad or try to isolate him has not worked. And so now the Saudis want to normalize relations. For quite some time, the Saudis had hopes that, that they could use the um, offer to normalize as a way to persuade the Syrian regime of Assad uh, to reduce its reliance on Iran. Uh, but that, frankly, was always quite unrealistic, and the Saudis seem now to realize that. Do you see that Iran uh, has had to make any significant concessions to the Saudis, to other Gulf states, in order to get these normalization moves going? 
Well, the normalization really is a normalization of inter-Arab relations, and it's really motivated by a desire to bring Assad back into the Arab fold. Uh, so if Iran were to try to play the, a role of mediating and encouraging it, that would go down very badly with the Gulf countries. That's not, not what they're interested in. They're interested in accepting Assad back into the Arab fold, not having Iran play a role in this process. Well, with Iran being such a, a key backer of Assad, uh, you know, along with Russia helping to keep him in power through all of these years of civil war in Syria, you know, do you think uh, these Gulf Arab hopes uh, will be fulfilled to see you know, Assad brought back in without being unduly influenced by Iran as they see it? The Arab Gulf states have generally tone down their hopes and expectations of what would happen when Assad is brought back into the Arab fold. And now they have a, a more realistic conception that Assad will remain a close friend of the Iranians, but he will add to that a friendship with the Arab Gulf countries. That's reasonable. Uh, Assad would like to be friends with both, but he is not going to break with the Iranians. Well, Patrick Clausen, Director of Research at the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, on the line from Washington, D.C. Great to have your perspective on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you, sir. Three days after Iranian officials said street cameras would be used to identify women exposing their hair in public in violation of Islamist hijab laws, Iran's Interior Minister Ahmad Vahidi said Tuesday those women would be deprived of public services if they ignored text message warnings. But social media images reviewed by VOA's Persian service indicate that women across Iran are continuing to go unveiled in public. Yasmin Green is chief executive of Jigsaw, a unit of Google that develops technology to address threats to open societies. I spoke to her by phone Monday and asked whether Iran's hijab surveillance system will have the desired result. Just to do some scene setting here um, about technology in Iran, is that the population of Iran is incredibly technology savvy. You know, 80% of them are online um, and they're very aware of how to use the internet to get information that their government might not want them to. But similarly, the government is very tech savvy and they have invested a lot of resources and are quite advanced and sophisticated in using technology to help advance their goals as an authoritarian government. Um, and that includes surveillance infrastructure. So the use of cameras and CCTV to you know, spy on people in public spaces, the um, ability to read license plates, to be able to match people who are driving cars and not wearing hijabs um, has been in place for a while. So what's recently been announced is almost a, a, just a, a scaling of the enforcement, as you described, as opposed to any new technology as far as I can tell. So it's documented that they've purchased technology from China to be able to do facial recognition. It's not clear that they are using that technology in this deployment that's just started from this weekend. So, you know, there is definitely an ambition to roll out very sophisticated, you know, surveillance infrastructure and to enforce control over their society, including women and headscarves. And then we will see more sophisticated facial recognition systems. You know, I anticipate that we will see those deployed because the investments have been made. 
right now, you know, the messages that people are being sent say something to the effect of, you were observed on this day with improper hijab. This is a warning. Right. Uh, Iranian authorities, when they identify women without a hijab, and we've also heard that they might impose financial penalties on women, they might summon them to court. But it seems like the potential punishments are rather uh, confusing. There isn't one clear uh, indication of what's going on. So how do you think Iranian women are going to respond when they get these uh, mixed signals about you know, the potential punishments they face? Oh, what we've seen from observing authoritarians around the world, and I'm thinking of you know, Russia and Syria, who in order to, you know, for dictators to remain in power, they're willing to exact a high price from their populations. My expectation is that if people do not respond to warnings, but you know, if that isn't an effective deterrent, then the penalties will become more severe, whether they're financial penalties and then prison and you know other type of physical violence that we've seen the government is clearly capable of. You know, I think there is a, a recognition on the side of the government that during the, the last six months of protests, the bloodiness and the brutality of it has not advanced their reputation. Um, so they're looking to kind of move from the the more brutal public morality police to a more private and scalable morality tech. But whether it's going to be effective at this point, which is their goal, clearly, and that's why they've done a lot of PR inside the country with the police chief speaking very publicly about the deployment and how it's going to be very accurate and reaffirming the government's commitment to hijab laws they are hoping that that will work. And it's a widespread campaign. They're also talking to businesses and attempting to kind of rally their supporters in the country to inform on people who aren't observing the, the mandatory law. So they're really trying to mobilize both, you know, the business sector and private civilians to help complement the technology angle. Well, what kind of high-tech or digital tools can Iranian women use to protect themselves from this kind of uh, surveillance or the punishments and, and basically fight back against it? Well, there are conversations happening inside the country about how the system could be subverted. Um, so one of the things I think, um, because all technology systems are vulnerable to getting things wrong, in particular, making assertions that something's happening when it's not, the language that's used in the field is false positives. Um, thinking that you've detected something that you were looking for when you didn't. One kind of subversive idea is if this system could be flooded with false positives, so thinking that there's been a woman without a hijab and that's not been the case, that they could maybe break the system. So if, for example, a lot of men went out with wigs or men with long hair because they are asking individuals on the ground to inform well, anybody could use that reporting mechanism and inform on somebody that was wearing a hijab. So there are ideas about how to break the system, and these systems are vulnerable in that sense. Once facial recognition systems are in place, then that becomes, I think, scarier because you're really identifying the person. You have actually an audit trail for what the image was of the person that you could interrogate, um, and then systems become harder to um, circumvent. When it comes to facial recognition, it does seem like Iran has acquired uh, some of this technology recently. How effectively do you think Iranian authorities can actually implement and use these tools? You know, do they have the knowledge to do so? They are highly motivated. Um, you know, one of the themes in 
the outrage about the program that started over the weekend is that there are so many priorities that any government who cared about its people would be pursuing in, at this time in Iran, including trying to help with the economy, trying to help people who can't afford to buy basic staples. So, you know, the fact that the government is investing its very scarce resources on technology to keep women's head covered, I think speaks to it, its priorities and its commitment to the Islamist theocracy that is in place. Um, so, yes, you have a very motivated and tech-savvy government here. Well, Yasmin Green, CEO of Jigsaw, speaking to us on the line from New York. Uh, nice of you to join us on Flashpoint Iran this week. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Michael. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. Here in Washington, Georgetown University hosted an online debate on April 12th about the prospect that Iran could undergo a new revolution replacing the Islamic Republic with a government that values free speech, secularism, and democracy. One of the participants in that discussion was Sanam Naraki Anderlini, CEO of the International Civil Society Action Network, where she works with women-led organizations to prevent violence and promote peace. I asked Naraghi Anderlini in a phone call after the event what role models Iranians can follow in seeking peaceful regime change. As I said in the discussion in the call with Georgetown, first of all, I don't believe in violence. And, you know, what we see around the world is that when violence has become the mode of communication or exchange, um, it does not lead to anything democratic. And, and we often see dictatorships being toppled only to have other dictatorships arise. So I think it's important to think about what the vision is for a country. Like, you know, it's, it's one thing to unite against what you're against. And in fact, that's the history that we have with the 1979 revolution. So many different forces, you know, from nationalist parties to communist parties to, to Islamists, etc. Um, I, I think there were something like 48 different political parties in Iran at the time. Um, there was unity around wanting to depose the Shah, but the minute that happened, the question of what comes next became a big challenge. And what we saw was the emergence of the most, if you want, organized and the most ruthless. So I think that in itself is, is a lesson to, to draw from. And in my work, I work on these issues internationally. Um, I work on a regular basis right now through ICANN with uh, specifically women and women peace builders in countries affected by conflict. And, you know, what I see is that if you look at Tunisia and if you look at South Africa going back to the 1990s, they offer some really interesting and important lessons on what is possible in terms of bringing about profound political change, but doing it nonviolently. What can you say about the uh, Tunisian context here? Because that was the first country to... Uh, be part of the Arab Spring back in uh, 2011. Yeah, that's right. So, so you know, if you look at Tunisia, say, compared to Egypt or Libya, for that matter, um, the Tunisians, you know, had their revolution. They were able to bring about a democracy. It was very fraught. It continues to be fraught. You know, in the first round of elections, uh, the Islamist party actually won the majority of seats in parliament, not because they got the majority of the votes, but because they were the most organized in terms of party politics and basically having people vote for them, that many of the other secular parties were too 
disjointed. There were too many small parties. So, so people voted for small groups that, that didn't get enough votes to win seats in parliament. It was actually the same in Egypt. Uh, the, the Muslim Brotherhood did not win the majority of the popular vote. But the point in Tunisia is that you, know, you have, um, first of all, elections, if elections come too fast, you can have challenges, as we've seen in Egypt. In the case of Tunisia, they had elections. There was a point at which they went to the brink of a lot of tension. And then you see a unity group that emerges that includes trade unions and others that decide to reach certain compromises. And I think this is the, and again, it's not a done deal. It's a work in progress. And I think this is, again, something that we must recognize. Democracy is always a work in progress. Right. As you engage in this work, can you tell our audience about what kind of dialogue you might be having with folks in Iran, especially women who have been leading the nationwide protest there since last uh, September? Well, on a personal level, it's very hard to have conversations for all sorts of reasons. So for me, the question is not what conversation I have. The question is, what do we see being put out into the public space by movements and groups that have emerged in Iran and have been active in Iran? There was a kind of like a charter that came out about two months ago, and it was um, signed by trade unions, women's groups, students' groups, and they were articulating their vision of what they wanted. Um, again, nonviolent, um, secular democracy. You know, we have women leaders in prison who have been very fierce advocates for ending the death penalty. Uh, these kinds of things are, you know, it's in the public domain. Nasrin Sutuda and Agus Mohammadi, these are women who have given their life for human rights. You know, they're sacrificing their own personal lives because they're in and out of jail. So there is plenty of leadership on the ground, a male and female, young and older. And, you know, the issue is to elevate and listen to what they are saying. And consistently, it is about nonviolence and it is about ensuring equal rights for all. What kind of uh, role could you see for Islam to play in a future Iran that might come after a potential fall of the Islamic Republic, given the deep roots, obviously, of Islam in the country in the last uh, four decades since the Islamic Revolution? Well, I think it's really important to make the distinction between Islamist politics and Islamist parties that bring in a particular ideology versus uh, Muslim and being Islamic in a social, cultural you know, a spiritual way. So that, I think, is an important distinction. You could argue the same thing for Israel, for the United States, etc. You know, when you have religion becoming the dominant force or religious ideology coming to the dominant force, that's a very different story to being a practicing Christian or a practicing Jew on a, on a normal basis. So that distinction is really important. Now, again, if we think about Iran or countries in the region, one of the things that's important to consider is if there is a moment where a new constitution is being drafted, an entirely new constitution. What, you know, what's the negotiation around how religion is presented or addressed in that constitution? In other countries that we've seen in the region, uh, if you take Afghanistan, if you take Iraq, one of the debates was, does Sharia law, you know, Islamic law, and of course the interpretations of that are varied, but often end up being quite extreme. It, is Sharia law the source of law or a source of law, right? So in the case of Afghanistan, it was negotiated, I mean, pre-Taliban, and it was a source of law. That means it has some role, but it's also part of a broader legal system that includes 
the Universal Human uh, Declaration of Human Rights, for example, you know, putting those principles. Uh, similarly, in the case of Iraq, there were some of these kinds of discussions. I imagine that in the case of Iran, given the recent history and given that the popular, you know, popular service that they do demonstrate that there may be spirituality, but not necessarily an adherence to the Islam that the Islamic Republic has been fostering, right? So I imagine that religion, Islam, and probably other religions will be uh, recognized, but we need to have a civic and secular um, discourse that ensures equality across ethnicity, sect, gender, and so forth. So I think in the legal framework, I imagine that it will maybe be referenced, but not have such a dominant role as we see right now. Sanam Nagaraki Anderlini, founder and CEO of the International Civil Society Action Network, ICANN, speaking to us from Washington, D.C. Thanks so much for being with us on Flashpoint Iran. Thank you. We're now at the end of our program and happy that you spent your time with us. I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Do come back next week for another Flashpoint Iran. <laughs>